Walter Bob from David Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. This is weekly Monday appearance, except in this case, this occurred on Tuesday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest, and on this edition of the program, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Love particular note this week, Madison Bumgarner, Christian Betancourt, and Japanese wunderkind Shohei Otani. They're all players who mix some combination of compelling pitching and hitting skills. I asked Cameron about the challenges that a two-way player might face in the major leagues. And we discussed together how being competent at both might actually render a player less likely to succeed in either. We discussed that. Also, three days into the season, it's fair to say that few statistical measures have become reliable given the diminutive size of the samples. However, one such metric does reveal something. That is velocity. For pitchers, it's pitch velocity. And for hitters, it's exit velocity. Generally speaking, every year about 100 players produce a batted ball velocity of 115 miles per hour or higher. One player did it on the first day of games. Who is it? I say to Dave Cameron. And Gary Sanchez, the answer is correctly. Cameron and I also discussed the curious roster construction of the San Diego Padres who feature almost uniformly a compelling offense filled with young and talented, if also flawed players, and then a pitching staff that is less compelling. This is just the program also features a pep talk from Dave Cameron, my editor at Fangraphs, after I discover that I've made an error at the site. This is problematic and nothing else you do matters. That outburst of compassion and others like it in what's to follow. And we'll get to the conversation momentarily. But first, it is my obligation, my duty to my employer to inform you that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable fee. Fangraphs readers can show their support for Fangraphs.com. And for a slightly less reasonable fee, those same readers can acquire a Fangraphs ad-free membership, which is a way not only to show support, but to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads. Follow the link at the post for this edition of Fangraphs Audio to learn more. Okay, and with that, we turn now to the conversation for real. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does the feature managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron? When does it begin? Right now. that last year there were roughly there were roughly about a hundred batted balls above 115 miles per hour sure if you, i'll take your word for it yeah yeah. that's not you, a number i have committed to memory okay yeah well i was trying to look for i was trying to get some thresholds and i probably will ask you about some baselines uh, over the course of this conversation wait but say that number again there are a hundred batted balls over 100 miles an hour 115 oh, 115 that makes more sense yeah I think I think the I think the thing is so I, I'll 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 predicate all this or I'll pre, uh, preface all this by saying we're at a point in the season which is two days in where velocities are the things that we can trust more or less although as you bring up in the post today <laughs> maybe not <laughs> maybe maybe velocities are not, because also uh, you have to look at the instruments that are measuring the velocities right um, although we probably think that the velocities relative to each other at least yeah. Uh, have there's some there's something to be gleaned from there. Yeah. Pitchers, we could we could see pitcher velocity. We have some idea, not um, both how hard pitchers are throwing and, and perhaps what that means in the context of their careers. We think we know that. And then on the hitter side, nothing uh, from a from a statistical perspective is going to add much. 
Um, except for the fact that I believe Joey Votto hit an infield fly ball yesterday. Yeah, he did. Uh, he got his one for the year. Which is, I think, it's more than he's had in certain seasons previously. Getting it out of the way early. There, okay, right. So, yeah. so, so that is actually significant in the fact that it happened once. So yeah. that's something that can happen once, and it adds to the conversation, I suppose, um, or ends a particular conversation. Uh, but but batted ball velocity, certainly, or exit velocity, is something that uh, perhaps uh, can reveal something at this point, too. So I, I took to the leaderboard, Dave Cameron, um, hoping to glean something. And uh, a brief inspection of last year's um, of last year's StatCast leaderboards reveals that if a hitter uh, records a, an exit velocity of 115 or more, then he's probably his that will probably finish in the top 100 um, for the season, right? Sure. Uh, no, I guess I could form this uh, in the I could place this in the form of a quiz. I don't know if it's more interesting that way. <laughs> um, now, only one batter so far has recorded a an exit velocity of greater than 150 miles per hour. Can you guess who it is? Gary Sanchez. Yes, it is. Yeah, he grounded out to Chris Archer. He hit Chris Archer right in the yeah. body. Yeah. And Chris Archer made the play. It was actually one of the first plate appearances, or was it the first plate appearance of the season, or like the second maybe? Yeah, it was early on. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's already happened. We've got it out of the way. So it's interesting when you watch them like that. I don't know how interesting, uh, but it's it's not zero. It does not. It's not a rating of zero. That if you've seen a batted ball at 150 miles per hour, uh, then you've probably seen one of the top 100, 100, uh, 100 most 100 hardest hit balls the, of the year. Yeah, and I think the, the hit percentage on these things is very high. So the fact that you saw one of these that went for an out means you, yeah, I don't know, maybe like 20 or 30 of them are going to go for an out all year. You've seen a rare thing. That's right. Yeah, and of course, launch angle probably does yeah. matter as well, yeah, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You know, it is interesting, um, some of this stuff, and we've we've talked before about how at some level, and this is not the only, uh, their only function, but at some level, scouts have served as data gatherers. Yep. Now, <clears throat> As they're gathering data, some of it they don't necessarily interpret right away. A, a, a scout might give you a runtime from home to first. Say, oh, he does it in four, four seconds or something. Now, there is a scouting grade for that. Other data that a scout gathers, he almost he interprets almost immediately. Like if he's putting a grade on a, on a breaking ball, for example, he might state the velocity, but he's integrating that into an overall um, – to an overall – assessment of the pitch, which includes the break, et cetera. Um, it's interesting to kind of get to, – to look at these – to look at the StackCast data and try and understand what that might mean in the context either of scouting grades or just what it means relative to other players because um, you don't always know what's ideal. But I think 115 miles per hour is a good bet you're going to do something good with that. Yeah. If you hit the ball really hard, that's that's helpful. Although I do think – if I remember correctly, one of the hardest hit balls, like maybe like the fourth or fifth hardest hit ball last year, was like Enrique Hernandez, Kike Hernandez, the Dodgers backup middle infielder. Uh, I think he had a ball like 119 or something, and like he really, it was like a Giancarlo Stanton type exit velocity, except it was a double play ball. He hit it on the ground and didn't do anything. So, like, uh, it's interesting to think like, oh man, if you find a guy who can hit the ball 119 miles an hour, you might have Giancarlo Stanton, or you might have Kiki Hernandez. Kiki Hernandez, who's not a bad player um, in the grand scheme of things, but relative to other major leaguers, more of a role player. Probably. Yeah, he's a useful bench piece. 
Yeah, well, it, you, it's good actually that you bring that up, that, that point about Kike Hernandez. I was trying to get a sense of what, because we've talked about this before with regard to pitcher velocity. If a pitcher throws a fastball at 99 miles per hour once, yeah. the chances of him either repeating it or at least approaching that figure are pretty high. Yeah. You, you don't sit 88 to 91 and then just throw 99 once. No, yeah, Tommy Malone is <laughs> yeah. not is not going to come out with 99 yeah. miles per yeah. hour. Especially, like, the next pitch. Yeah. That's you actually mean, a really easy way to track for, like, system errors, is you just look at, like, here's the range of pitches that a guy hits 95% of the time. Is there anything, like, five miles an hour above that? If so, the system just broke on that pitch. Right, the system broke. Right. And we can talk about the quality of the instruments in a moment. You, you um... Because you, you wrote about that for today, not necessarily the quality, but the, the method by which they're they're recorded. Um, batted ball velocity, exit velocity. I assume that it has. I assume that it reveals something similar. Although, as you've pointed out with the Kike Hernandez example, it may not be flawless. How do you think? Like, to what degree can we use peak exit velocity? Do you think? Not nearly as well as we can use peak pitcher velocity. So. Um, like, a pitcher is in much more control of how hard he throws the ball than a hitter is in how hard he hits the ball. Uh, and the range of, of exit velocities for a hitter, and you can have, you know, a hitter can hit the ball between 40 and 120 miles an hour. A pitcher cannot throw the ball between 40 and 120 miles. I guess he can throw it 40. He can't throw it 120. Um, so there's just a larger spread in controllable skill in pitch velocity than hitting and exit velocity. Uh, there's certainly, I think once you get into, like, doing things a handful of times. Uh, you don't need a huge sample size, but you do need, you know, N more than one. Like, N equals 10. You know, if you get 10 batted balls at 115 miles an hour, pretty sure you've got a guy who can hit the ball hard with some regularity, has some power. That's really hard to fluke. But just once or twice, uh, as, as the data shows, um, guys who don't have a lot of power, don't have a lot of game power at least, uh, can hit the ball at the very near top end of the spectrum once. Once. And that and that's what you're saying with Kiki Hernandez, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily reveal something larger about Hernandez or maybe the fact that he has untapped power potential because he was able to perform that act once. Right. I mean maybe in ten years we'll be able to look back and be like, look at Kiki Hernandez had a age thirty breakout where he had forty home runs and he's the you know new Brian Dozier. And we should have seen this coming because he hit them all hard once in 2015 or 2016 or whatever. Uh, but right now we don't have that kind of like long-term uh, study of a guy who early in his career hit the ball hard once, didn't hit for power, and then later in his career figured out how to hit for power. More likely it's like he just took a perfect swing one time and made perfect, you know, bat-on-ball collision uh, and the pitch was in the place where he just happened to, you know, have the right amount of torque, and therefore the ball went off the bat at a high rate of speed, but he doesn't have the ability to do that over and over. But I also have to think that that if a, if a batter has, if his peak velocity, if his, if, if the hardest he hits a ball a year isn't particularly high, that must reveal something. Yeah, I think there's probably a... Um, kind of like with pitch velocity, a little, like a little bit of a bound, right? Where like if you don't hit the ball harder than 80 miles an hour, you're not a major league player, right? Like, right. Um, you know, I guess knuckleballers aside, there aren't any guys in the major leagues throwing in the 70s. There also aren't any guys in the major leagues hitting in the 70s. Uh, so if you're like, you know, I think ben, Billy Hamilton and Ben Revere and a few of these guys, they're down in the low 80s, and they're clearly not in the major leagues for their bats. Um, this is a little, something of like a lower bound, where if you can't reach this level, this is... This is problematic, and nothing else you do matters. Right, and if you look, for example, among re- like regular players, 
D. Gordon last year. The absolute hardest he ever hit a ball was a hundred, um, just under a hundred two miles per hour. Right. Um, <coughs> and this was theoretically while using performance enhancing drugs. Well. All right. Well, besides, I mean, he got suspended, I, I, so you know we're not even speculating. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, and I like the other players around him. For example, are Ben Revere, right? Um, Jamile Weeks, I guess. Yeah. I actually didn't know Ryan Hannigan. Those and are so, players you. And some of this is just is obviously body type and size. Some of it's also just swing, right? Like if you have um, the body type and power that does not is not conducive to hitting the ball hard, you will change your swing in a way that you're not trying to necessarily maximize exit velocity. Like this is a thing that we know is there's a trade off between exit velocity and contact. If you if you're Giancarlo Stanton, part of the reason you're hitting the ball really hard is because you're willing to accept all the swings and misses you got trying to hit the ball really hard. If you're, you know, Ben Revere or one of these guys, and you know that hitting the ball hard is just isn't your thing, you're going to go to the other end of the spectrum and just try and hit the ball every single time. Right, and so so there's a there's a population of hitters who have essentially selected themselves out of this particular contest. Yeah, they're not trying to hit the ball hard. They could hit yeah. it harder if they wanted to, but they would be worse. So if I if I went through if I plotted. The, uh, the maximum exit velocities, or say the, or the average exit velocities, of batters, and I plotted those figures against contact rate. Yeah. It, it, what I in the the players who were what the top right of that particular graph, mm-hmm. who both hit the ball the hardest and made the most contact the most often. Yeah. Are those likely? To, Miguel Cabrera would be up there, basically. Right. Yeah. So that's that's those are likely to be my best the, the yeah. best players then. Yes, right. The guys who hit the ball hard and don't swing and miss are historical great uh, outliers. Like there's most guys who hit the ball hard do so because they're taking swings that are not conducive to contact. And so if you can hit the ball hard and make contact, you're exceptional. Yeah, and I and I it's a again not not having had or, or la- lacking a, like a real substantive scouting background i'm forced to i'm forced to reflect on my days as a high school player <laughs> at, uh, at not a particularly strong level but i do but it is this this is what makes something more clear and this is perhaps where numbers can um, illustrate a point in a way that um, in the way that or in, a, in such a way that maybe i would not have gotten it by other means which is it yes in in high school if <laughs> the kid on the team who hits the ball the most often and the hardest is the best player. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's he's doing the best. Yeah. He also probably plays shortstop because that's how high school baseball works. <laughs> and, and then he pitches on maybe he's not playing shortstop. Right, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. the best player on the team. Yeah. I was thinking, then, thinking about this the other day as, like, Madison Bumgarner had this, like, you know, pretty great performance on Sunday is how it's really interesting, uh, you know, kind of that nature versus nurture argument is, like – at what point, because you're so good at one of the aspects, do you cease to be good at the other aspects because you say, okay, there's a point at which, a t- kind of a tipping point, like if I'm this good at hitting, I shouldn't be pitching anymore. I shouldn't be risking my health because I'm just such a good hitter that I, this is the thing that's going to carry me to the big leagues where, um, you know, maybe there's an ideal mix of like I'm not quite good enough to give up on pitching but I'm really good at both, and I'm going to put in enough effort to maintain to be good at both, and then I can be, you know, I don't know, Micah Owings, or one of these like kind of two-way players as this is becoming a thing in Major League Baseball. I wonder if there's a point at which, you know, a guy like Madison Bumgarner, if he was a worse pitcher, would he be a better hitter because he would have spent more time developing his hitting, but he was just so good at pitching that he is now just an okay hitter, but Madison Bumgarner, maybe, maybe Madison Bumgarner could have been one of the 20 best hitters in baseball, 
But we didn't get to see that because instead he's one of the ten best pitchers in baseball. Right, and and I guess a player has to make that choice, or or, or an organization. I mean, depending on how how late it occurs, the organization right. has to make the choice for the player. Yeah, there was a there was a prospect that the Red Sox traded from uh, Boston to San Diego, um, Casey Kelly, perhaps. Yeah, who I who was a two way player, and I think actually uh, preferred playing shortstop. Um, but the Red Sox were like, all right. That's fine. We we prefer you a pitcher. We'll let you play shortstop for the first year, though, if that's really what you want to do. Because I guess, hey, free shortstop. Right. Um, and then uh, he did, didn't work out well. He became a pitcher. He was traded to Padres, and I think arm troubles. Yeah, have, didn't, didn't work out well for him as a pitcher either. Right. And so, so they actually ended up with nothing. It's a weird thing. You, um, I don't know. Like if you think like Josh Kalmenter has had a, has had a better career, a more productive career than Casey Kelly. Yeah. Despite the fact that Casey Kelly possessed sufficient skill on both the pitching and hitting sides to make him possibly a first-round pick in for for either skill. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's an interesting concept to think about, and maybe a study for someone is like, like James Loney is another one of these guys, right? Like James Loney was a first-round pick out of high school as either a pitcher or a hitter, and I think the Dodgers actually surprised people when they took him as a hitter because everyone had him on their draft boards as a left-handed pitcher through '95, which that used to be unusual. Now everyone throws '95. That wasn't the case ten years ago or twelve years ago, whenever James Loney was drafted. Uh, and he's a guy who legitimately looked like a you know a promising. Uh, high-end prospect on either side, and it's it's interesting to think about, like, maybe James Loney would have been a better, more productive Major League player had he been worse at one of those two things. So, right, this is the advantage of being bad at something. Yeah, right. If you, like, suck at hitting, you might be a better pitcher. <laughs> because you because you don't have to... Well, it's you, interesting. So you don't there, bother. So there, uh, there have actually been a... Um, there's been a minor flood of... Um, of posts at the site over the last week about the potential for two-way players. David Lorla wrote one uh, for today, actually, an interview or excerpts from an interview with Bobby Dahlbeck, yeah. who played at the University of Arizona, did both, and uh, is now in the Red Sox system, and was asked, you know, by Lorla, is like, you know, would you want to do both? And Dahlbeck's like, no. And now he's like, <laughs> he's like, no, it's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is the best. I'm glad he said that. I actually don't know if I've come across anyone saying that. He's like, no, it's hard. Um, and he actually made the point, interestingly, that it might be harder if you're an everyday position player and pitched occasionally as opposed to training as a pitcher all the time and then hitting occasionally. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true. It's like figuring figuring out how to pitch probably takes more work than figuring out how to hit. Like there's probably more just natural ability in hitting. Uh, and and an actual like craft and understanding game theory and how to set up hitters and like a little bit more um, developed mental aspects of pitching than there are of hitting. So I think if you're just a pitcher who then can just like Madison Bumgarner just go swing hard a few times a day, that's probably easier than if you're you know if James Loney tried to become a number two starter at this point in his career. Right. Although although you know I mean. Maybe he could become a lefty one-out guy, which is, you know, that's the solution there. Yeah, I think the Tigers just uh, decided to try this with Anthony Ghost because uh, he can't hit. And uh, we've got enough evidence now that he can't hit that they've to send him to, I think, double-A or something. And they're going to they're gonna let him keep playing center field some, but then he's going to convert to pitching and try to be Matt Bush or Christian Betancourt or one of the number of guys who've done this recently. That's right. Uh, or Sean Doolittle. Yeah, Sean Doolittle. Who was, uh, a, what, he was a first-base prospect in the... Yeah. A system before becoming quite a good reliever. He yeah. has to. 
in terms of the distance, because he made it to AAA, he actually he might have even gotten major league plate appearances as a first baseman. I don't know if he did or not, uh, but he ended up. Uh, I, don't, he, I don't remember him as a major leader. I could be wrong. Yeah, but, it, but the point is, I th- well, I think he may, at least made the AAA, right? Which seems like a, a pretty far way to make it uh, before before um, doing the switch, making the switch. Yeah, well, I mean, Anthony Ghost has had like a five or six year major league career at this point. Like he's almost eligible for free agency, and now he's switching careers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're, yeah, and you're right too. Uh, it looks like AAA. It looks yeah. like a doable AAA in 2009. He actually was pretty good as a hitter in, uh, that year. But, uh, I wonder if he would be a better player if his name was Dumore. <laughs> Speaking of doing little, <laughs> uh, someone alerted me to an excerpt from yesterday's uh, opening day chat extravaganza. Yeah. In which uh, someone asked you, I believe as a form of compliment to me, uh, you know, like, so it's something about how Carson makes it look so effortless. Right, yeah. And you responded, you weren't sure about that, but you know it, it is effortless. No, I, I, don't respond, put I, I, I just responded that you, I can't say that you make it, I can't say that your work is effortless. I can just say that your work uh, involves less effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Carson Doolittle. I moved towards around. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. On the topic, oh yeah. So, um, I want to ask you about two-way guys in a second. I want to just say that uh, I just want to bring up the fact that uh, we brought up some of the bad at the exit velocity leaders. Gary Sanchez, number one, uh, in terms of fastest pitches. Uh, do you know who's? Can you guess who's recorded uh, one of those? The the fastest of those. Uh, well, Roland Chapman hasn't pitched yet, so not he hasn't. Him. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, uh, allow me to tell you, it's a starter. Okay, so then the natural guess is Noah Syndergaard. He has the third and fourth fastest pitches. So some starter threw harder than Syndergaard? Yeah. Uh, How do you even done it on opening day? Opening day, opening day. Oh, like, so, okay, that would be Archer. Well, certainly wasn't Masahiro Tanaka. No. Uh, no Bumgarner. It certainly wasn't Zach Greinke. Uh, no. Oh, Carlos, Carlos Martinez. Carlos Martinez. Yeah, there we go. I was just going through the list of guys who pitched. No, you there. did a good job, but Carlos yeah. Martinez was uh, was fantastic in his yeah, debut. He, he was really good. For some time, it, well, I'll give you my assessment, a pre- potentially flawed assessment of Carlos Martinez, and then you will adjust it. For some time, he's looked like a pitcher who possessed, obviously, a really exciting arm, electric stuff. Yeah. But it hasn't necessarily always translated, at least in a starting capacity, uh, to swings and misses. Right, uh, but he did a lot of that in his debut. Yeah. So Martinez is interesting because I think you know he's one of the guys that in Major League Baseball I'm probably most wrong about is like when he was coming up, I saw a low arm slot righty who couldn't get lefties out and uh, and thought, hey, this is a guy who belongs in the bullpen. Like there's durability issues here. He had shoulder problems. He's small. Um, you know, he didn't really have a breaking ball, so it's like a two pitch guy with a lot of velocity who doesn't miss a lot of bats. Why are you bothering wasting your time making this guy a starting pitcher? Just stick him in the bullpen where he belongs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now Carlos Martinez looks like a pretty good starting pitcher. Yeah, he was re- he was really fantastic. I mean, he was nearly unhittable against you know what probably <coughs> the best the best offense or one of the best offenses in the majors. Yeah, it's up there. I don't know if it's the best, but it's up mm-hmm. there for sure. And certainly one of the scariest uh, front three, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. the top of their order is ridiculous. It, yeah. There's some drop-off toward the end, but the, yeah, the, the top of their lineup is really good. Right, so sh- so Martinez has uh, the fastest uh, the fastest overall pitch of the season, yeah. um, among including even including relievers, which was uh, interesting to see. I don't know if it'll keep up. Obviously, he's always had good arm velocity or good yeah. arm speed, good good fastball velocity, but he really was able to marry it with the swings and misses. Do you know? Do you know? 
if anything was working in particular for him? Well, his changeup was pretty crazy the other night. And has it always been that good? Yeah, he's had a plus changeup for a long time. Yeah. Well, that, that's a good. those are good tools to have. I will say, speaking of throwing 100 and having a great changeup, Noah Syndergaard, uh, mm-hmm. I know he was facing the Braves, so, you know, uh, caveat emptor, but um, mm-hmm. he, last year, was uh, was a fastball slider guy, and then now, yeah, I mean, he threw a changeup, but it wasn't great. The changeup he was throwing yesterday was looked like one of the best in the game. It was 89 with movement, diving into the ground. Um, so now he throws 100 with a 93-mile-an-hour slider and an 89-mile-an-hour plus changeup. I I literally have no idea how you're supposed to hit this guy. Well, I think that probably batters uh, share, share that. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Uh, Major League hitters also have no idea how to hit Noah Syndergaard. I mean, like, Clayton Kershaw is the best pitcher alive, but just on pure stuff, Syndergaard is, um, you know, like a video game pitcher where you turn all the ratings to max. I believe uh, Clayton Kershaw threw some change-ups in his start he yesterday. threw a few of them, yeah. And uh, I was not watching that game, but I was involved in the live chat at the time. I was I made the decision of watching the Mariners or the the uh, Twins Royals game. Why did you do that? I don't know. It was based it had the on most, it had the most minor league players in it. Yeah, well, they do have a lot of my of uh, interesting young players, but I think it was at that time it was the closest game. Okay, uh, it, why, it stopped uh, being the closest game when the Royals bullpen entered. A lot happened, yeah, yeah. including uh, including a. Well, actually, a lot didn't happen. It was just the Royals walked like seven straight guys. What Travis Wood had some problems, and actually, surprisingly, surprisingly to me, Matt Strom had some problems. Yeah, too. I was yeah. not happy with that. Anyway, uh, let's see. Oh yeah, so so that was the note I wanted to make about Carlos Martinez. Back to some two way guys. We uh, we touched on we touched very briefly on Bobby Dahlbeck, who's a prospect, who's uh, sort of um, asked to meditate on this for a moment. Um, we've talked uh, briefly about Bumgarner, although a point about Bumgarner, I asked you about the highest overall exit velocity. Yeah. Only two players currently sit within the top ten in terms of um, peak exit velocity, and, and it's Bumgarner. Only Madison two, Bumgarner. Only two players sit in the top ten? So, sorry, sorry. Only one player appears twice in the top okay, ten. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> I was like, if sense. you only have two players, that's the top two. Only one player uh, it appears twice in the yeah. top ten, and it's I Madison Bumgarner. I think, uh, what, like... Uh, Mike Trout hit the ball 113 for a home run yesterday, and maybe someone else hit some other home run that was a little harder. But, like, Bumgarner has still two of the four hardest home runs hit this year, which is hilarious. I saw uh, after the first day of games, someone someone uh, tweeted out a leaderboard, the, the batting leaderboards. Yeah. And Bum, Bumgarner was the leader in almost everything. Yeah. Yeah, he's batting 1,000. I, I think runs. that's actually still true. Yeah. Well, he's good. So, um, but it doesn't seem like... I don't know. Did he have a reputation as a great hitter beforehand? No. The funny thing is, like, early in his career, he was actually a bad hitter. Like, if you look at, like, his first four years of the major leagues, he was not a good hitter. He didn't have pretty power. He struck out a lot. Uh, and then, like, in 2014, he basically just, like, hey, I can hit homers now, and he hasn't stopped. And he's also, as you noted uh, in, a, in a piece that you wrote this week, he has also actually gained some sort of plate discipline along yeah, the way. Yeah, I mean, he drew 10 walks last year. Like, it's always a little bit tricky to... You know, say, you know, once a guy starts hitting for power and then he starts getting walks, whether it's plate discipline or just fear. But I think he actually saw a higher percentage of pitches in the zone last year than he did the year before. So it's not like pitchers finally just figured out, like, oh, Madison Bumgarner can hit mistakes. Let's stop throwing him strikes. Like, they still threw him strikes. And he still drew 10 walks last year. And I thought, like, obviously the two homers were super impressive. But that walk he had against Zach Greinke in his first at bat, I mean, Greinke's a guy with, like, pinpoint command that you can say, okay, you know, the, the guy can, you know, go after the corners. Like, I, don't, I really have to protect. It's not like it's, you know, some wild pitcher on the mound that you're just like, well, whatever, that one wasn't close. 
And he fell behind Granky one and two and drew a walk, which is not easy to do for, you know, a guy who bats once a week. Yeah, and wasn't it some, like, sliders just off the plate, essentially? Yeah, I mean, they were, like, a little further off the plate than Granky wanted, probably, but they were pitches that I think, like, we've all seen Yosemite Tomas swing at those pitches yeah, every yeah. single time. <laughs> like, it was, right, right. you know, everybody, every right-handed hitter in the world chases the one-two slider down and away, except for Madison Mumgarner. Yeah, that's, that's scary. Uh, <clears throat> someone who's performed, uh, similarly Herculean feats, over the course of a whole season to Shoyatani. Yeah. Shoyatani, uh, the Japanese baseball player who might end up in the major leagues someday, um, or will end up in the major leagues, although it's not clear when, perhaps. Yeah. Is a better yeah. way I mean, unless he gets hurt or dies or something. Right. Now, Travis Sachek wrote a really interesting piece about Atani today, uh, in the context of the conversation about two-way players, in particular, um, in the context of a piece that, you know, Sarah wrote about Christian Betancourt. Uh, which we can address briefly in a moment. But Otane, you know, we talked about the problem of like a Casey Kelly where you're you're so good at both things that that you you, you refuse to uh, ditch one of them. Yeah. And therefore actually maybe maybe it it, it does have a, uh, an effect on your development. Otane is the be- uh, maybe the best at both of the things? Yeah, he might be the best hitter and best pitcher in Japan. Right, and he he actually produced more than four wins on either side. Like he was he was more than a four win hitter and more than a four win pitcher. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, he was worth ten wins overall, which is yeah. essentially Mike Trout. That's yeah. Mike Trout. Um, if if he does, I mean, as of now, looking at it very generally, when he if and when he does arrive in the states um, or Toronto. <laughs> what will what what do you think a major league club would do with him? And do you think it depends on the club? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be an interesting discussion of, like, whether you want to, like, kind of do what we said earlier, be a position player who tries to pitch when you're not hitting, or if you want to be a pitcher who hits sometimes. And I think my guess is it's going to end up being your pitcher who hits sometimes. Like, I think it's going to be more the Madison Bumgarner role, uh, maybe with more frequent pinch hitting appearances and maybe hitting higher in the order when he pitches. Um, and that would lead itself more to a National League team, probably, because... Mm-hmm. Um, obviously pitchers hit in the National League, uh, and then you could use him as a pinch hitter for your other pitchers on days he's not pitching. And so you could probably get him, you know, 200, 250 plate appearances that way, um, which is probably the most you want from a guy who's also going to maybe throw 200 innings for you if he's that kind of level of pitcher. Um, uh, you know, I think having it go the other way where he's like your starting left fielder who then, like, you know, throws 110 pitches or whatever, and then can you put him back in the outfield and expect him to make throws the day after he throws 110 pitches, that's harder. So yeah. I could maybe see an American League team saying, like, we're going to just make you our permanent DH, but teams are kind of moving away from permanent DHs anyway. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether it's more of a National League team who says, you're basically a pitcher who we're just going to pinch hit you every day, or if you're an American League team who says, we're going to use you at DH, uh, and then, you know, once a week you're going to pitch, or, you know, whatever, once every five days you're going to pitch. Uh, which one of those would be more appealing to him? Oh, yeah. So if he maintained the same rate stats, right, yeah. would he be more valuable? And, of course, there is a bit of a DH penalty, but there's also a pinch hitter pe- pinch hitting penalty. Uh, would he ultimately produce more wins in, in as a everyday pinch hitter or, I guess, everyday DH if, if he was able to do it? So I think that's the thing is we don't really know um, – whether he could sustain himself as a the, the same level of hitting you would expect 
as a pinch hitter uh, versus a DH, especially the day after you pitch this, right? So like, I've talked to some major league pitchers about kind of like what the day after your pitch you pitch is like, and the way they describe it, it is not like you're just like ready to come to the ballpark and do whatever needs to be done. Like most of them just want to sleep all day. Like their bodies are breaking down, they're tired. They just you know um, they expended a lot of effort and mm-hmm. used up all of their athletic energy the day before. The last thing they want to go do is play a baseball game again. And so if Otani was going to throw like 110 high energy, high effort pitches and pitch really well. And then you ask him to come to the ballpark and like, hey, can you go hit Justin Verlander today? Uh, we don't know how much, how diminished he would be as a hitter based on the effort he, you know, expended as a pitcher the day before. Um, and that's going to have to be one of the discussions that Otani and the teams have is like, what can we realistically expect from you in order to keep you as a, a quality pitcher? What do you actually need in terms of rest? And I think at this point, teams are heading towards more rest than less rest. And so to have a guy who's going to, you know, hit 150 days or play 150 games as a DH and throw 200 innings, like, that's just really unlikely. Uh, well, here's a question I probably should have asked minutes ago. Uh, how is he currently used in 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 uh, NPB? Uh, I think he's an outfielder, okay. uh, if, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. I think he's right. an outfielder in Japan. Because he seems to get a sufficient number, throw a lot of innings and get a sufficient number of plate appearances. Yeah, I mean, their season is also shorter, and right. uh, well, I think pitchers in Japan pitch once a week. It's yeah. more of a, like a college schedule. All right. So it's uh, not entirely comparable. Yeah. That, that would be a really good question to ask someone who follows Japanese baseball. Yeah, you might not be the right guy for yeah. that. <laughs> you might not be the right guy. Uh, I just want to ask you about one more thing, and uh, it'll be a bit anticlimactic after the conversation we've had. Not that, not that we've really re- reached the heights, but uh, it's not entirely – uh, it's not entirely related to what we discussed, but it's just something that uh, I've been thinking about, and that's the, the San Diego Padres. They're so bad. Well, they're bad, at, and what I would submit is a bit of a weird way, because almost up and down, probably with the exception of Eric Ibar's shortstop, up and down their lineup, their 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 roster on the position player side is pretty interesting, right? They have a bunch of young players. Um, to whom they're giving a playing time, um, they have some. They have a guy like Austin Hedges who's young and like, had, like maybe you know totally reworked to swing. Ryan Schimpf is a similar, um, is a similar profile. Um, he he seems to have worked to swing as reworked to swing as well. And so, at any time like any time one of their offensive players is up, you're like, oh, like this guy is either, he's like developing or he's young. He's probably going to be with the team for a while. So it seems though. For whatever reason, that uh, the organization has done a good job of of putting together the position player side of the roster. the The pitching side is, I, I mean, it's almost. I don't know how to characterize it necessarily. It's like a bunch of guys who are over thirty, <laughs> and uh, and I, there's like not. I mean, Jared Weaver, right? He's like a very known commodity, probably yeah. too well known. At this point, you wish you knew less about Jared Weaver. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, whatever his uh, virtues as a man, uh, as a pitcher, there (laughs) they've they've become diminished. They've expired. Yeah, Yeah. and I mean, among their pitchers, perhaps Luis Perdomo, you could say, is like he's maybe the the only one you'd say. Well, given his uh, tools as a pitcher, there's something here. But what do you, to what do you attribute? Um, and perhaps randomness is the answer to the imbalance, I guess, in the in the roster construction. So I think it's you're probably more concerned with 
not overworking and not rushing pitching prospects than you are with hitting prospects, right? It's so like a guy like Manny Margot probably could use more time in AAA. Like, if he was on a better team, he probably wouldn't be in the major leagues. Like, uh, the guy with, you know, a lot of athleticism is probably not ready to hit big league pitching yet. Uh, there's some question about whether, like, taking a guy like that, sticking him in the majors, will have some harm on his development skills, because perhaps he's gonna get down on himself if he, like, strikes out ten times in a row and change something about his fundamental approach, and it could, you know, um, have some long-term harm on him. But in general, like, we don't think it's that destructive, especially health-wise, if Manny Margo plays 150 games this year, it's not a huge deal. But if you have, like, pitching prospects who are not quite ready for the big leagues, and you stick them out there and they just get absolutely pounded, um, and then, you know, <laughs> you run them out there for 150 innings, they're getting absolutely pounded, and they're throwing high-stress, high-leverage innings, because there's guys always on base and they're never going 1-2-3, this could be disastrous for their development. So you generally want to be more conservative with your arms. So I think the Padres basically just said, why rush any of the kids we care about? Let's just sign a whole bunch of guys we don't care about for no money and mm-hmm. let them give up seven runs a game. We'll lose a whole bunch of games. We'll get the number one pick in the draft, and we'll get rid of all these guys. <laughs> and then next year we'll do it again, but maybe work in a few more young kids. And this is kind of what the Atlanta Braves are doing too, right, with like a slightly higher level of performance. But they, you know, Jamie Garcia and R.A. Dickey and Bartolo Colon, they brought in so that they didn't have to push, you know, Matt Whistler or Aaron Blair or right, some of these guys. right. right. And, and and yet the Reds seem to be going a slightly different direction. I suppose they have Bronson Arroyo and Scott Feldman, uh, but they also have what they got uh, rookie Davis, right? Yeah, I mean the Reds probably just have more higher quality, close to the big league low ceiling guys. Like the you know rookie Davis probably isn't going to ever be an ace, but he might be a back end starter. Yeah. And so if you're like I have a 24 year old with okay stuff and okay command, fine, run him out there. Padres don't have very many of those guys, so they get Jared Weaver and Huli Shasin and uh, Clayton Richard and you know, Trevor Cahill. Yeah, I I mean, obviously they were facing the Dodgers and Clayton Kershaw yesterday, but yeah. I, and I forget the final score, but I believe it was... 12-3, 14-3, something like that. Yeah, right. I, it was getting towards double I, I, Like I was looking at it, and I was like, I wonder if any team in uh, our kind of history has run wire-to-wire in, like, worst team by base runs. Because, like, even if you're the worst team, you're not necessarily the worst team on opening day, right? Like, you know, if you're a bad team but you have a one good pitcher, maybe you play pretty well the first day, or maybe you have a decent first week. But, like, the Padres, by virtue of getting destroyed on opening day, they have a pretty good chance of being, like, at the bottom of the base run standings from day one through day one. Solidly the worst. They could could just be the worst all the way through. (laughs) Yeah, let us uh, look. What is the... the the worst base run standing you could theoretically have? Uh, I mean, it's probably close to replacement level. I think the worst I've ever seen is like 53 wins or something like that. Like the 2003 Tigers were really garbage. Maybe they were like 45. They were down there somewhere. Right. Yeah, well, in replacement levels, about like 47, 48. 48, yeah, somewhere in there. 48, yeah. So the, the, the Padres' base runs winning percentage right now is point zero one five. Not good. <laughs> no, it's not. And, and, uh, it, It'll likely get better by the end of the season. <laughs> if it doesn't get better, that means they're going to go what, like two and one hundred and sixty. Yeah, that's right. That's a that's a yeah. I was trying to figure out the uh, you, you've done some math. It appears uh, that it would be yeah. It would be two, maybe three. That's not very many wins. That would be a record. It would be a record. Yeah. All right, Dave Cameron, you fulfilled your obligation. All right. All right. You can do whatever you were going to do for the rest of the day. You know, uh, and I'll do put, put in more effort than you probably. Yeah, well, that's fine. I, I gotta, hey, I did I did uh, accidentally um, publish a post yesterday about Yandy Diaz. 
you accidentally published it? Or you accidentally wrote it? Well, I accidentally wrote a, a full post yeah. on Yandy Diaz. You got long-winded when it came to Yandy. Yeah, there's a, apparently there's a lot to say about him. Yeah, Yandy is your yeah. candy. Yandy, uh, Yandy Diaz... Well, he, oh, so with regard to Andy Diaz, he basically, I mean, not a non-prospect, right? But just, yeah. but probably fr- a French fr- prospect. Fringy prospect. Your, fringy prospect. Your kind of prospect. Right. A fringy prospect who who started, who made his major league debut on opening day. Yeah, that doesn't happen I have that often. To, I have to think it doesn't happen that often. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I guess a lot of, I guess a lot of, a lot of, Minor leaguers don't make their major league debuts on opening day because if they're very good, then teams are probably waiting a little bit. Yeah, holding them down. Yeah. Yeah, and then if they're if they're bad, then they're not going to be on the opening right. day roster. There's like the sweet spot of like I don't suck, but I'm also not awesome, so yeah, I can so, play. So the Andy Diaz is the sweet spot. Yeah. The team doesn't see any reason to to uh, prolong his uh, service time. Right. And, or or and they but they also like yeah you're like. You're like a little bit better than Michael Martinez, yeah, right now, and it, it, he doubled, doubled. A yeah. lot of a uh, lot of uh, varying opinions about his defense. Um, the, I don't know if any of this interests you. I'm saying it anyway. Um, uh, what Eric Longenagen has heard and seen is that he could be, in theory, he could be a passable shortstop. He's good, but he's plus at third. Yeah, and uh, but a lot of Cleveland people saying um, they're not as optimistic about it. Like so. pe- people who work for the Indians or people just in Cleveland? People in Cleveland. Okay. Yeah. It would be it would be like notable news if the Indians organization themselves were not as optimistic. It came right came right out. Yeah. I guess there's some concern about his uh, about his defense, at least among the major. I mean that's true of almost guys. every fringe prospect, right? Like I mean like occasionally you hit on one of these like all glove, no bat guys and they turn out like Jose Ramirez I guess is always considered like a pretty good defender and he's mm-hmm. turned into a hitter. But most of the guys you like are this kind of like plays shortstop, but it's not going to be a shortstop. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, that and this is probably a player on whom we focus some. It's the, like it happens in the outfield too, with like the above average corner outfielders. Yeah, you know, I mean, Brett Gardner was that guy for a while, right? right? Yeah. Where you're like, uh, why is he playing the corner outfield? Let's right. just play center. Yeah, and I guess Gardner could play center. He could have, yeah. Yeah, he did I mean, for a while. Yeah, Carl Crawford was that. Carl Crawford preferred the outfield corner. Yeah, Randy Wynn, I think, was that way. Yeah, those guys who just they they, they prefer it out there. I guess it's good for their teams if yeah. um, if it works out because I assume some guys are the exact opposite. They have a certain uh, attachment to center field and they feel like they're being. I mean, that didn't happen with Matt Kemp for yeah, a long Ken, time. Ken Griffey Jr. didn't want to move off the position when he was like a negative thirty-five. Uh, right, when they're active in the team. Yeah, that's worse. It, yeah, I saw Matt Kemp make the last out of a game yesterday. Yeah, he he took some really bad swings. Like like Matt Kemp against Noah Syndergaard might be one of the worst matchups you could imagine. Uh, just because like Kemp's not a super disciplined hitter, and uh, you know Syndergaard just carved him up. Yeah, I'm gonna look at the. Did Syndergaard have a bunch of strikeouts? He only had six in five innings. Right. But he left early with a buster. Oh yeah, that's right. All right, you're done, like I said. Thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been Dave Cameron. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.